Hello and welcome to episode one ever a new podcast series, The Future of Europe. Europe is at a crossroads and there are many predictions as to what direction it will take. And in this podcast, we look at the key issues that will affect the European sphere in the next decade. Our podcast will cover the big topics like healthcare, education, civil society and the future of the nations that inhabit the European continent. We will also bring a uniquely Irish perspective and address how smaller European states are going to progress by using Ireland as a benchmark. Our guests will be from many different walks of life and backgrounds, each bringing their perspective on how the Europe of today will become the Europe of tomorrow. Our podcasts are presented in cooperation with the Communicating Europe Initiative and the CEI was established in 1995 to raise awareness about the European Union and to improve the quality and accessibility of public information on European issues. You can find out more about the CEI by visiting our website, theeuropeannetwork.eu or logging on to the dfa.ie website. Our first episode will focus on the European economy with a focus on EU-level debt and post-COVID-19 recovery. And as we begin to perceive a light at the end of the pandemic tunnel, many of us are wondering if it's not the oncoming train of economic malaise, or even worse. To help answer some questions that many people have about the European economy, we chat with Frances Cowell. Now, Frances is also a member of the European Network, but she happens to have 30 years' experience in senior roles in banking and finance, and we will ask how safe our banks are, whether the European economy is about to implode, levels of debt, and the future of cryptocurrencies in Europe. Francis, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is a really exciting new podcast. I'm excited about this because we're going to be tackling big questions in this podcast series. I want to jump right in and ask a really big question. Post-pandemic, is there a danger that European banks may fail? And if so, what happens if they do? It's certainly an understandable worry. Um, but frankly, I think that right now uh, bank failures are pretty unlikely. Now, that said, individual banks fail from time to time. They do for, so for their own reasons. And look at that debacle with Credit Suisse where they invested, made an awful investment, and it's cost them 4 billion francs or something like that. Banks fail from time to time on their own. Bank failures become a worry when a number of banks fail all at once. And people then may lose confidence in the banking system. Now, that then becomes a serious problem. Um, governments learned this many years ago. In fact, most of them learned it in the 1930s. And so nowadays, most governments guarantee small deposits, usually up to about 100,000 euros, dollars or pounds, so that small savers uh, with smallish amounts in their current or savings accounts are protected even if their bank goes under. Now against that, banks are required to hold a buffer of their own money to call on if things go wrong. And that means that their shareholders pay up before taxpayers do. Now, leading into the global financial crisis, those buffers had been allowed to dwindle and were far, far too thin at the time. And so we saw those bank bailouts, which, well, people hated and rightly so. Since the GFC, banks have been required to boost those by a factor of two or three in many cases. And so now, Banks in Europe, as in most parts of the world, 
are safer than they've ever been. They've had a big, they now have a much bigger buffer of their own money to draw on if they get into trouble. So, well, that means that in summary, banks and not bank failures are not what keeps me awake at night. And would that also apply to smaller banks? Although, is there such a thing now as smaller banks after 2008? <laughs> in some economies, there are actually. There are many quite small banks in America, um, if I understand correctly. Although in Europe, most banks tend to be big, with the possible exception of Spain. There are quite a lot of small, smallish banks in, Ger- in Germany, I think. Um, yes, it does. It does. Uh, provided a bank is big enough to be regulated by its local government, um, that means its national government, uh, then it will be required to hold a capital buffer. And uh, and so its small depositors are protected. And if your bank, you're wondering if your bank is so protected, or it's fairly, it should be fairly easy to find out if they are. In reference to, say, the situation that we have coming out of COVID, is the difference now compared to the difference back in 2008, is that the money is more real in the banks now? Whereas um, back in 2008, there was a lot of imaginary money. Yeah, that's actually a very good way of putting it, actually. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. There there was a lot of what they call financial engineering going on. Uh, and there still is, but um, not in the same way. And governments said, no, 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 you've got to have... You've got to show us that you've got this amount of money in the bank. We are not going to fork out again. And so I think, yes, it's a, it's a good way of putting it to say that the money is actually real and it's not um, vaporware. I want to move on to the European economy now because as a whole, there always seems to be this threat of an economic implosion. And that seems to never go away. So are we now facing an even more serious threat with that? Or is it a case that coming up to say, 16 to 18 months of what we're dealing with where it's an official close down of really the economy are people in the background working on that to prevent that from happening yes well things certainly look dire with restaurants and shops closed for the best part of 18 months now europe was hit early and it was hit particularly hard by the pandemic and partly that's because it's such a nice place to visit we attract a lot of tourists and, and that's where it started at the time in northern Italy. And what we've seen there is the tourism is, industry is virtually closed down. And because southern European economies, Italy, France, Spain, rely especially heavily on tourism, those economies were hit particularly hard by the pandemic and the early shutdowns that we saw. But there's a reason to to be optimistic about that. At the time, let's go back a year, people thought the tourism industry was totally dead. But now we're seeing really strong indications that people are ready to go on holidays again. They're even going back on cruise liners are booked up for the summer. You'd never believe that, but there you are. And people are ready to take holidays again. We're seeing that now with restaurant bookings, with airlines and with hotels. Uh, As soon as Europeans can travel, it looks as if they are about to do so. The pressure for the vaccine passport is more evidence of that. People want to be able to travel or safely, but they want to be able to travel and take their holidays. It's not just tourism either. In the general economy, manufacturing, surveys of manufacturers 
are more optimistic than they've been for many years, even before the pandemic. So it looks as if all of European industry is ready for quite a rebound. Partly this is because of social support during the lockdown, the, the confinements, that people have received help and they haven't had any money, anything to spend their money on. So they're ready to go out and spend their money and that's going to boost manufacturing as well as tourism. The tourism will have a particularly strong effect on the European economy because Europe is, is heavily weighted toward tourism relative to other economies. But it's not just that. And the stock market is also showing signs of optimism there. You would never believe this, but in 2021, guess what was the best performing stock market in the world? It was the Euro stocks. 50. So European stock markets are performing well, better than American or Asian ones, or the big ones anyway. So those are all very, very good signs. And so we could see a strong rebound in the European economy when it gets going. There are a number of other reasons to be optimistic. I can think of three at least. And there's one really big worry. First of all, employment is ready to take off again. And the reason for that is that many, if most, European companies were encouraged strongly to put their employees on furlough rather than dismiss them entirely. So that means that when the economies do open up properly and we're starting to see that, workers are ready to go back and they will be productive productive right from day one. Now, in other places where people were laid off or just dismissed, those firms who did that now have to hire new workers. And of course, when you hire somebody, it takes three to six months for them to be totally productive. Those firms in Europe and most firms in Europe where workers were put on furlough are productive right from day one. I'm wondering myself if the fact that in America, for example, uh, firms tended to dismiss their workers and now have to rehire totally new workers, and the fact that it takes time to bed them in, make them productive, might be leading to bottlenecks which are contributing to a a spike in inflation in the US. That's my feeling and it would explain why the US Federal Reserve uh, is not planning to do anything to, to tame inflation at this point. They think it will go away in time. Europe doesn't have that issue in we're going to be ready to go the moment it all opens up. That's one reason for the to be optimistic. The other one is that the banks are stronger. We already saw how banks have strengthened their balance sheets since the global financial crisis. They're ready to lend the moment the economy gets going again and firms are ready to invest. Another reason for optimism is that the, the recovery funds, which um, you know we, we know about the 750 billion at the EU level, but don't forget that's in addition to individual member states' stimulus packages, which in some cases are quite large. So the actual amount being thrown at new investment in Europe is actually much bigger than that 750 billion would actually suggest. What's important about that is that the investment is being targeted, and it's being targeted in two important ways. First, 
it's seeking to increase efficiency or in many cases iron out inefficiencies in the EU economy that inhibit investment and productivity growth. So that's one thing but also it's being used as a a great opportunity to orient the economy more toward a, a climate friendly economy and that's really important because that means that what you're doing is not creating extra spending you're bringing investment forward that would have to happen anyway and the result should be a more efficient economy and a more climate friendly economy and that's going to put Europe in a very good space vis-a-vis the rest of the world. Those things are very important. Those are three things. So the the employment, the, the fact that workers are ready to be productive straight away, stronger banks and targeted investment. So you said that there was one thing there that you weren't so optimistic about. The thing that worries me is inequality. Inequality, everybody hates, well, most people hate it. Why is it bad? It's bad for the whole economy. It's bad because it's such a waste of talent. And if talented people can't get the education they need to be put in the jobs where they're going to be most useful to themselves and to the economy, then that's a huge waste. And that hurts even the people who seem to be doing well out of inequality. They don't realise it, but they're being hurt too. But study after study after study has shown that the pandemic is hurting disproportionately those among us who are less well off. And especially it hurts women and children. Countries where you've seen schools closed for long periods of time, those are hurting poor children more than anywhere else. And so that worries me enormously in the short term and in the long term. Europe is probably better placed than most other parts of the world. Why? Because it turns out that um, European member states tend to be very equal places and in fact are, um, for the most part, the most equal in the whole world. It may not feel that way sometimes, but they are they're less unequal than other parts of the world. But that doesn't mean we don't have an inequality problem. We do. And we need to think about it. We need to address it materially by improving opportunities for the less well-off people, and especially young people, and especially children and women. In the long term, you can't overstate the growth consequences of this. But in the shorter term, the political consequences are potentially quite dire as well. So inequality, I think, is my biggest real concern as a consequence of this pandemic. Yeah, and of course, the other thing is as well, you have inequality within the states in the European Indeed. Union, outside, and the states outside of the European Union. We, As you know, we did recently the podcast on Moldova, and the issue is that there's still an enormous amount of people leaving countries like Moldova because no one's willing to take the opportunity to invest in them. So these are issues that Europe probably needs to look at as well. They can't be just thinking of, you know, how can they enforce inequality um, measures in the the states that already are kind of well established, like France and Germany, you know, these states are heavily unionized and they're they're okay in in broader terms. But it's certainly the, the states in in southern Europe and and in Eastern Europe that are probably tinder boxes in some See, ways. And it's one of the reasons that the the EU in particular targets underprivileged or less privileged regions within countries 
So it looks for not just at the country level, but it will go down to the regional level and say, okay, which regions need the most help? And that's where they target in things like infrastructure investment. That's not to be sniffed at. It's had a huge effect. And you will probably remember yourself from when Ireland joined the EU. Uh, a lot of infrastructure investment was thrown at it. Take a drive around Spain. I remember when Spain wasn't a member of the EU and what it was like then. And I look at roads and bridges when I go there, which is relatively frequently, and I think, well, this is all EU money. Do the locals Certainly. understand that? The EU is not a bottomless pit when it comes to money, right? So it's going to fall on a lot of states in, within Europe to um, handle, to basically pay the bills, in See. other words, that are kind of mounting up at the moment. Everybody's kind of on the credit and goodwill credit as well. So... What's going to happen is we're going to have government debt. Now, the levels of these government debts, how dangerous are they? Are we dooming future generations to almost serfdom? And what happens if the recovery doesn't happen as we want it to? Well, I'll, I'll tackle the first part of that question. First, um, the debt levels are as scary as scary as. You look at it and you think, what? You can't do this. Um in fact, uh, government debt in Europe hasn't been this high since just after World War II. Uh, and there is a lesson. There is a big lesson. Um, compare, just think about the monster debt that was taken on just after 1945 and the investment and the unprecedented peace and prosperity that lasted well, it did last decades, um, that followed that. Now compare that with the mealy-mouthed, beggar-thy-neighbour attitude at the end of World War One, and what that led to. Now my point here, I suppose, is that debt in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, and it can be quite a good thing. Um, if you want to distinguish whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, um, I would propose three questions. The first one is how much is it costing? In other words, how high an interest rate are you going to have to pay? The second one is what are the money is going to be used for and who are you in hock to? Um, the interest levels are probably as low as anyone can imagine. First of all, euro level interest rates are historically low levels. In fact, they've never been this low. Um, global interest rates have never been this low. Um, and you know yourself that when lenders are evaluating a borrower, uh, the amount of interest they're going to demand will depend on how risky they think that borrower is. And uh, amongst countries, Germany is considered, for example, one of the safest borrowers there is. Italy is a little bit riskier and so has to pay a higher interest rate. And then you have countries like Argentina um, that have already defaulted on debt a number of times in recent years. And so they have to pay quite high interest rates. Um, the EU, in this recovery fund, the EU is for the first time ever taking on debt collectively. Now, if you think Germany is safe, the EU collectively is a lot safer. 
um, and, uh, and is likely to be able to borrow extremely cheaply. So this debt is probably not going to attract very high interest rates. In fact, it will probably attract extremely low interest rates. The second question, what is it going to be used for? Now, this is really key because if debt is to be sensible, then it has to lead to investment that will bring returns that are greater than the cost of the debt itself. Uh, I've just mentioned that this is being carefully targeted in order to yield decent returns on it. And this is just sound money management. This is this is not rocket science. It's the sort of thing you do when you do your household budgets and decide whether you're going to borrow to do that extension on the house or um, pay extra school fees or whatever it is. Um, so you just want the return on your investment to be higher than the cost of making the investment. Um, and there the runes are good in this case. Now, who are we going to be in hock to? This is That's the big question. Yeah, this is potentially <laughs> the scariest of all. But you know what? I'm relatively calm about this. Um, unlike Argentina, where who's found itself in hock to a bunch of, of hedge funds with, um, it seems, absolutely no heart, um, the most likely holders of this debt, now bear in mind, the yield, the interest that they'll earn on this debt is going to be very, very low. And the natural holders of these kinds of bonds are what we call big institutional investors. And who are they? They're pension funds, uh, in the big insurance companies, and big trust and mutual funds. Um, and these are the sort of investors that hold money for a long time. They will buy these bonds and then sit on them for a long, long time. They hold them not for the return they're necessarily going to yield, but to balance the risk of their investments in share markets and things. Um, and they just need this buffer, this low risk buffer to offset the risk in, in much riskier investments. Um, I My guess, from what I understand about having worked in the financial markets for a long time, uh, I, most of my career I worked for institutions exactly like that, um, is that they will, be the, they will be the main investors and they'll be euro-based investors themselves. In addition, you'll have pension funds, trust funds and insurance companies in other um, parts of the world, America and, and Asia and so on, uh, and they will hold some of their portfolios there too. Other governments will hold some, and uh, most of these investments, investors are stable and they hold them for a long time and they're not holding them just for the yield, they're holding them for to balance an existing portfolio. I see. Yeah. But Francis, what about inflation? Because, you know, with all the debt and spending, will that not cause inflation to spiral? It could. Inflation happens generally when there uh, are more buyers than sellers and so a lot of buyers are pushing up the price of a limited supply of goods or, or assets. Other things can cause inflation as well. Uh, for example, what we call one-off factors. Now think of um, a spike in oil prices. Uh, 
which is which is what we've seen recently, and it pushed um, eurozone inflation up a few tenths of a percentage point. Inflation has also been held artificially low by Asian economies, like such as China, but not just China, whose wages up until now have been much lower than uh, wages in Europe and America. And and so people, firms have sent their manufacturing over there to get, get it done more cheaply. Well, guess what? Over time, uh, Asian wages have been bid up and so now they're starting to converge with Western standards. So that cost advantage that they've had will disappear. And in short, things are going to get more expensive to buy. That is likely to be a one-off factor. Inflation becomes a problem when people expect it to continue and they demand extra wages to offset their extra cost in living then inflation becomes chronic as it did in the 1970s and 80s uh, and then it's a problem. That could happen. I'm inclined to think it's less likely now than it was 40 years ago, partly because central bankers are much more adept at managing it now. They've learned an awful lot from the mistakes they made in those days. So they're much better at heading that off. It's also worth noting that European inflation in, in particular is the big problem with that. It's actually been that it's too low. And uh, governments worry much more about low inflation than they do about high inflation. When it gets this low, they worry it might slip into deflation when prices are going down and people stop spending money. And then the economy really does grind to a halt, grind to a halt and it's very hard to get out of. The question that kind of comes to mind is is what's happening, say, I'm going to use an example of what's happening here in Ireland, is that um, traditionally Ireland would have had high prices in the city and medium to low prices the further you get out of the big cities, which would be Galway, Cork, Limerick and Dublin. And if you got a certain distance away from those cities, the prices tend to de- deflate. But what's happening here now in Ireland is that prices in the rural areas are going up because what's happened is people are now working from home. And that means that, you know, these homes are becoming now almost equal in value to the Dublin homes because there's no need for commuting. There's no need to be based in the office anymore as much. And what's happened now for the first time ever in Ireland is that the prices in Ireland are beginning to rise quicker in the rural, sorry, higher in the rural areas than they are in the, in the built up city areas. So I'm wondering, could that be a situation everywhere? And if so, will property prices become more affordable or go up? Well, um, I, we've seen the same pattern happen in many, many big cities. Um, I think uh, in Britain and certainly in America, it's been, I was just reading an article the other day about it, um, and what they're finding in a lot of places, some big cities are seeing property prices actually go down. Um, a lot more are seeing property prices across the board go up, but in cities it's going up less than in the outer suburbs. And for exactly the reasons you gave, people are saying, well, actually, if I'm only going to be commuting one or two days a week, then we can afford to live further out and I can have a, a spare room as my office. The other thing is that's 
rental can change because what you have is you've got mm. a young guy who works for Google in Dublin, right? He's trying to find a apartment that's €2,000 a month, right? And then he kind of goes, oh, hang on, you know, they're saying I can work from home. So actually, so in most cases, a lot of people are going actually home. They're going back to the parents' house and they're kind of picking up, say, you know, one of the rooms and they're ending up being there because, first of all, their wages might have changed. And that's a strange thing because that's happening. People are going back to parents' houses in a different sense. They're not going back because it's because they've lost their apartment or something. But they're making lifestyle okay. choices based yeah, on the situation. It's very interesting. Now, time will tell if those trends persist or if people say, oh, hang on, I really like my own mm. place. And actually, I really like being close to my friends. And It is going to affect the economy, though, isn't it, in some way or another? For at least a few months, anyway. It will, absolutely. And it's very hard to say what the long-term trend, because what we're seeing now is is a relatively short-term reaction. It may persist and it may accelerate, or we may see some kind of reversal in that. Um, the other thing affecting that is that we've got very low interest rates, means it's very cheap to borrow. And also, following the um, the social benefits people have been getting throughout the the pandemic a lot of and the fact that it's been they haven't been able to spend any money a lot of people are sitting on big wads of savings and they're thinking well this is a great great chance to invest in more more property um in some parts some cities estate agents are reporting that most of their sales are actually for second homes and that's interesting which is tax revenue for the states. Of course, of course. And that will, if that's the case, it will change the rental market too in those places. I want to talk a little bit about the recovery now. Let's go back to that because um, everyone's talking about a recovery. Oh, it has to be a recovery. There's going to be a recovery. It's going to be big. It's going to be small. It's going to be so like 2008. It's not going to be like 2008 at all. So going back to the recovery, do you think it'll happen? And Because after all, the EU is... It's a kind of, you know, it's a chronic underperformer compared to, say, the US, because the US has this way of kind of dumb, they're like, you know, on steroids sometimes. So what would make us think things might be different now? And it kind of, it's the kind of similar to the question I asked you earlier on, but I'm thinking about in terms of, say, how the US, or sorry, how the EU works in terms of, you know, the day-to-day issues and how a recovery, how can they, how can they meld that back into a recovery? Yeah, I... You hear about that. This is the <clears throat> the rhetoric of, of the the gung ho dynamic America and the stodgy, stuck in the mud, sclerotic <laughs> Europeans, old old the big bureaucrats. Yeah, the old <laughs> continent stuff. Um, I have. I'm afraid I've never really been convinced of that. And I think uh, there was an article published on the European United website in about July night, two thousand and nineteen where I sought to unpick that. And there are two things. What's America got? I mean, it's, you can't deny, um, you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, they're all American, aren't they? Um, we don't have a, a European one, so why? What's America got that Europe doesn't have or could have? Um, Lots of people. <laughs> well, hang on, we've got more. The difference, I think, between the Americans and the Europeans, let's just use the Europeans because we're in this context of, is that a lot of Americans buy and eat and, you know, do the same things, whereas Europeans, you know, are, can be fussy in different ways. Yes, they are. Like somebody from Poland doesn't necessarily have the same consumer choices See. and the consumer taste yeah. to say somebody, say, from Sweden 
or yeah, Ireland. Or Spain, yeah. I think that's the difference. Yeah, exactly. But that was one of the things I identified, and there, were, there was another, or was one and a half others. The one you're alluding to, which I'll call the single market, America is a single uniform market. Uh, if you launch a product in the American market, it's the American market. It's not the market in Utah or Minnesota or Florida. It's America. Or the US even, for so, example. You've got Mexico and Puerto Rico and Costa Rica and Canada. Uh, but um, the US, just keeping to the US, it's a single market. Whereas Europe, until now, has not thought of itself as one. Yes, we have we have the free move, movement of goods capital services and people and that's very very important we're only now starting to see europe actually start to behave like a single market and you're seeing for example eu-wide neobanks starting up and they're marketing to europe not to any individual country um, even uh, many american firms now selling into Europe, selling into Europe, not individual countries. And that's a big thing. Now think about this. If you're got uh, starting a business and it's going well, it's a lot easier to sell into your home market than to sell, uh, to start exporting at an early stage. It follows that if your, your home market is very big, then you're going to grow big before you have to go into ex think about exporting. And America has had that advantage. Coca-Cola and McDonald's were vast before they even thought about exporting, and then they went to Canada anyway to start with. By the time they came to Europe, they were vast, and that meant they had the mass to buy or snuff out any local competition. And if they failed, as many did, most famously, Walmart came big time a cropper in Europe. They can just retreat to an already very, very profitable home market. America has 365 or something like that relatively wealthy consumers. Europe has 450 million. And though in aggregate our consumers may not be, on, on average they may not be, uh, quite as wealthy as the Americans, I think the median is probably higher. So they're quite wealthy, they're quite sophisticated consumers. Europe has the potential to be a massive single market and it's starting to see itself as a, as a uniform market. So I'm optimistic on that. It's still going to take quite a while and it may take a couple of decades, but I think it's well on the way now. now the second big thing, and this is absolutely key that the Americans have, is that if you start a business and it fails, the cost to you is very low. And why is that? They have a provision called Chapter 11. You've doubtless heard of it. Although the, I won't go into the arcane details of it, but you can think of it as a corporate social safety net. And it means that if your business goes belly up, your creditors don't come in and seize your house. And that makes a big difference. You're much more likely to take a punt on a new business if you're not going to lose everything. Yeah, you can walk you away. You can walk away. And what's what's more important, you can start again in relatively short, short space of time. And that also that will also engender, as it has in America, we see the famous deep and active 
venture capital industry. So it's very, very easy to raise funds and and keep yourself going. Europe does not have that yet. The deficiency's been noted, and I think the European Union is in process doing th- things about that. We've already seen the last, oh, I think it was about 10 years ago now, a single market for European um, patents, for example, and that's one step, but much more needs to be done. And I think those two things, the single market and a Europe-wide bankruptcy protection scheme, would make a huge difference. And we do not pretend that Europeans are not innovative. Give me a break. Cars were invented by Europeans. Um, where did Skype come from? I think it came from Sweden. You can go on. You cannot tell me that Europeans are not innovative and they're not risk-taking. That's nonsense. America also spends a lot on defence and space research, and those give rise to new technologies, which in America are often assigned to the inventor to use for commercial purposes. That's not yet the case in most parts of Europe, but that can change. As uh, Europe beats beefs up its uh, defence spending and research and procurement and its space research, and we've already done a podcast series on that, that will give rise to opportunities for new technological innovation in Europe. So I'm optimistic on those things too. Much more needs to be done, but um, I think the problem, the deficiencies have been recognised and that's a big step. I want to particularly look at the smaller states. So let's look at Ireland in that respect. Pre-COVID-19, Ireland had been on the road to a pretty decent recovery, uh, especially considering that only 10 or so years ago, it looked like the state would be forever in massive debt. But clever financial investment and hard work by everybody in Ireland, painted a pretty good picture by March of last year. The country looked really healthy. There was a lot of good jobs. New investment was coming. But now signs are this that it could be a very difficult road back for Ireland and all small nations in Europe. So using Ireland as an example, what does a small European state need to do to ensure a quick bounce back in 2022, 2023? Yeah, you're right. Ten years ago, things looked really, really pretty bleak in Ireland. And we did wonder, goodness, are they going to dig themselves out of this hole? Well, guess what they did? Um, One of the reasons things looked so bleak 10 years ago is that the Irish banks were in such a mess and they were in a big mess. They're not now. Irish banks are quite strong and they'll be, again, ready to lend as soon as businesses are ready to invest. So that's one good sign. Uh, Banks, we hate them, but they're extraordinarily important to an economy. So that's a good sign. The other good sign is the one you've just mentioned, and that is how the Irish dug themselves out of the hole through persistence, hard work, and um, they must be one of the most ingenious and industrious people in the world, I have to say. So there they are. And by the time we were going into this pandemic, the economy was extremely healthy. That is a good sign. That is the best sign there is that it will recover quite quickly. So on those counts, I'm pretty optimistic about Ireland. If anything holds Ireland back, it's likely to be Brexit, in my view. Yeah, agreed. I don't want to get into too much detail because we could end up doing a whole podcast on Brexit and you know, still never have the we'll answers. Do a whole series. So, so I think, yeah, exactly. Oh, do we really want no. to go down there? 
I'm curious about other countries though as well. I mean, when you look at say somebody like Malta or Portugal even, where are they going to find the ammunition to get back up and and get back into the fight, so to speak? I'm guessing, but my guess is uh, both of those countries rely quite a lot on tourism. Malta also on uh, financial services in the same way as Ireland does, in fact. And But the tourism for Portugal, say, is likely to give a big boost uh, to a rebound in, in the economy. Again, it comes back to these targeted recovery funds as well, where the EU is saying, okay, well, we've got these inefficiencies in the economy that need to be fixed. I'm not sure that Portugal is in, in a particularly bad state there. I think they're quite well, they're in quite a good spot. But uh, this summer, when people want to go on holidays, Portugal's going to be on their list. It's a case then that smaller states are going to have to shout really loud in 2022-23 to Brussels and say, listen, we have an issue. This is what our issue is. Do you want this issue to get worse? Is that what they need to do? I think they need to be more positive than that. I think they need to say, okay, look, we, we know we've, we've got these issues here um, and this is what we're going to do about them and these are the prospects. Um, this, these are the benefits. If you throw money at us, these are the benefits that um, you're going to see back. Malta, Malta is slightly different because it relies also on financial services. So we have a chance for European countries to kind of prepare themselves for this kind of open door once once COVID-19 is over. Yeah. And it will be over. I think we all need to be positive about that. It's slow, but it's never ending. So that's that's the positive thing. I want to finish on something that seems to be very trendy at the moment. It's sexy. It's um, It has its, its fans and it has its enemies. You know, some people say it works against the environment because it uses up so much energy. And then other people are saying, look, it's great. It keeps currencies going. Uh, it keeps people, you know, in jobs. It's developing new concepts for employment and also for new opportunities in economies. It's cryptocurrencies. Mm. Now, again, lots of people are searching for ways to protect their savings against inflation and economic collapse. And they see the likes of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies as a possible refuge. Elon Musk is, you know, praising it from a height. And some other organizations are beginning to use it as a standard for currency. So is this good for them and for the economies? Cryptocurrencies, yes, definitely have a future. Bitcoin, I don't think, is amongst them. I don't think Bitcoin is a currency, in fact. Um, is it a store of value? No, it's far too volatile. Uh, is it a unit of exchange? Well, yes, people buy and sell things in Bitcoin. But is it a unit of account? Now, of course not. It's far too volatile. Would you like your bank bank balance denominated in bitcoins when you get a double overnight and then next day find that you're worth a tenth of what you, of what you thought you were? No, you're not going to accept that. I think bitcoin is no other than a highly speculative asset. It's something that's like, um, I don't know if you would buy a an avant-garde painting, it could go double, go up 10 times overnight, or it could just turn out to be worthless the next day. That said, in the long term, Bitcoin can only go up in the long term. And the reason for that is that it's the number of Bitcoins that can ever exist is capped. I think it's about 21 million. In fact, it's probably capped at quite a bit lower than that. 
to mine each Bitcoin uses an enormous amount of it, um, electricity. I, I read recently that the pollution it creates is equivalent to driving a thousand kilometers in a, a petrol engine car. Um, that's an American car too, by the way, not a, an Econobox. It uses a lot of electricity. That makes it um, very expensive to mine every new Bitcoin. And the only reason people have continued to mine Bitcoins until now is that uh, electricity has been subsidized for it, mainly by the Chinese. And so that means that now the Chinese have said, no, we're not going to subsidize electricity anymore. It may not be worthwhile to mine any more Bitcoins. I think there are about 18 and a half million Bitcoins in existence right now. We may find that there won't be very many more. So Bitcoin's future is limited by its limited supply and the cost of mining each new Bitcoin. It also has an image problem for another reason, apart from its impact on the environment. It's anonymous. That's why illicit traders like it. But if you want to be associated with people who go around trading in people and parts of people, then I'll be surprised. It being anonymous is why governments hate it. Uh, and they hate it being anonymous because that means they can't tax it. That said, governments like cryptocurrencies. In fact, many of them see them as a way of bringing much of the cash economy into the open so they can tax that. So for that reason, most big economy central banks, including the ECB, have some kind of project to create a crypto cryptocurrency that they themselves control. China is avant-garde here. They're, they're, they're in the advance um, and they've already launched a pilot project for that. So I think we're going to see a lot more of cryptocurrencies. I just don't think Bitcoin's going to, to be amongst, amongst it. Now this brings us to an interesting point. China, which until now has been subsidizing electricity for the mining of bitcoins has suddenly decided that bitcoin is not environmentally friendly because of the pollution it causes now i find it i struggle to believe that china only just discovered this fact i suspect that there's another motive and i think it might have to do with the fact that they are launching their very, very own cryptocurrency pilot project. Some people call me a cynic. Well, perhaps I'm all uh, in that, but that, I don't know my intuition there. But every other central bank is very, very interested in the use of um, cryptocurrency technology for very similar reasons, because they want to bring a lot of the cash economy into the open and tax it. So I suppose we could say that cryptocurrencies will um, prove their worth fairly soon. Now, Elon Musk, did he really only just discover how polluting Bitcoin is? Now, forgive me, but I struggle to believe that too. One could ask what um, planet he might be on. I wonder if his decision could have something perhaps to do with his Tesla operations in China. But then people do say I'm a cynic. He had a few weeks earlier announced that he was going to accept Bitcoin as payment for one of his Tesla cars. 
and I'm certain a number of people would have taken that up. As you said, Ken, it's very much a fashionable idea, Bitcoin and Teslas. So what we don't know is how many people use their Bitcoin to buy a Tesla and how how many of those Bitcoins Elon Musk is now still sitting on. Now, bearing in mind that in the long term, Bitcoins can go only up in value. And if indeed the Chinese government stops subsidizing electricity and virtually no more Bitcoins are ever mined, and this is entirely possible, then the price of Bitcoins could go up exponentially, in which case Elon Musk will be even richer than he is. Now, that's highly speculative and it's only my opinion. I've not heard anybody else say this. So the Elon Musk question is, uh, is, is very, very interesting. If those are not his motives, then I wonder what they are. And one still would like to know how many Bitcoins he actually is sitting on. We may never know that. But generally, cryptocurrencies are here to stay. I think we'll we'll see them in the future. That's certainly true. And they'll probably change as well, as will, of course, money changes. You know, Indeed. if we look at the way money was originally, it's completely different to the way Indeed. it is now. Indeed. That is it. I mean, you know, it becomes part of our economy and our daily lives. And if it benefits people, um, you know, they will use it. And sometimes the moral you know the moral ideas go ahead to go push to the side a little bit listen i'm old enough to remember a time when nobody had credit cards and credit cards were 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 (laughs) were considered extremely risque and um, and only dodgy types had them francis thank you so much for painting such a concise picture of the european economy and we certainly do live in interesting times You've been listening to episode one of the Future of Europe podcast by the European Network. My name is Ken Sweeney and many thanks to my guest, Francis Cowell. Thank you very much for taking the time, Francis. You can find our podcast on all major platforms, including Spotify, Google and Apple. And we are, of course, on Twitter at EuronetPod. That's a capital E, capital N and a capital P. And, of course, we're on Facebook as well. Our website is theeuropeannetwork.com and you can get in touch with us if you want to let us know your thoughts about this series or, indeed, any of the work that we do. Episode 2 is coming soon, so don't forget to subscribe to our channels. And from all of the team here, goodbye for now and we'll be back soon.